The security clearance process is complicated. Maybe you find yourself applying for a position with the national security community and then finding yourself with questions you don't know how to answer. Maybe you've held an active security clearance for decades and now find yourself wondering if you need to report that DUI or if your bankruptcy will be flagged under the new continuous vetting program. Security clearance policies are changing and it can be hard to keep up. Whether you're a security clearance applicant, defense industry hiring manager, or government agency, it's okay to have questions. We have the answers. Welcome to Security Clearance Insecurity on Federal News Radio, brought to you by your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley with security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Hi, this is Lindy Kaiser with Clearance Jobs and William Henderson, president of the Federal Clearance Assistance Service. Bill has served as a counterintelligence agent with the U.S. Army in a variety of personnel security roles in the federal service and founded FedCast in 2012. Throughout his career, he has seen a number of security clearance issues, and he's joining us today to talk about some of the most frequent problems he encounters. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us. Well, thank you, Lindy, for, for having me. So if no one has heard of the term statement of reasons, we wanted you are the expert on all of these process and policy things. So walk us through what a security clearance statement of reasons is. Well, normally it's attached to a, a letter or it's incorporated into a letter from an adjudicative authority. Often the letter is, is referred to as a letter of intent to deny or revoke security clearance. Uh, sometimes it's incorporated into a letter of denial or a letter of revocation, depending on who the um, adjudicative authority is. The intelligence community tends to write letters of denial or revocation rather than a letter of intent. So the statement of reasons explains to the applicant why the government is not going to grant a security clearance or is going to revoke a security clearance. And those reasons are tied to the uh, 13 adjudicative criteria listed in the National Security Adjudicative Guidelines. Okay, and so we're talking about clearance problems today, and that's definitely one of the problems you noted folks come to you with or you get questions about, and that's folks who say that their clearance was revoked, but they haven't received the SOAR, the Statement of Reasons. So why would that be the case? Well, this generally happens with high side intelligence community agencies. And when I say high side, I mean the um, the three lettered agencies like CIA, DIA, NRO, NSA, NGA. There's also a low side, which are primarily like Army, Navy, Air Force, and now uh, Space Force. The high side intelligence agencies oftentimes tell their building security office that they're about to deny a clearance or revoke a clearance and that the building security office to pull the individual's building pass. Uh, when that happens, the employer, oftentimes a contractor, is told that not to allow their person to go to the customer site anymore because their building pass has been revoked. That then usually results in employment termination because the applicant can't do his job without going to the customer's site. That then results in a loss of jurisdiction because when the person's terminated, they're no longer affiliated with the government in any way. And then the intelligence agency doesn't have to follow through to write the statement of reasons because there's no reason to anymore because the person no longer has the job and doesn't require security clearance. That is a dicey situation for sure. And I've actually, I've heard of that exact scenario happening where someone is kind of offloaded, you know, has their badge accesses removed or whatever and ends up in that state. So you mentioned that term loss of jurisdiction. So what does that mean? And what can, you know, somebody maybe who had held a security clearance do if they have that loss of jurisdiction? 
Well, unfortunately, there, there's really very little that can be done by the applicant. The primary way of, of solving the problem is to get another entity, whether it be a cleared contractor or a government agency, to sponsor them for the clearance so that the adjudicated facility can reopen the case and, and complete the adjudication. I, it's important to understand why loss of jurisdiction occurs. And it's, as I said earlier, it's a matter that when a person is no longer affiliated with the government because their sponsorship is been withdrawn. They no longer require security clearance. So there's no reason for the adjudicative agency to spend time and money to adjudicate the case and, and make a eligibility determination. Adjudicative agencies feel that it would be a waste of money to do that when no clearance is required. The vast majority of adjudicative agencies will enter a loss of jurisdiction into a person's clearance record when they're no longer affiliated. There are some agencies that, that don't do that. The CIA, for one, if they deny security security clearance, they will continue adjudicating as long as you want to pursue the matter through a second level review. The LOJs occur for a number of reasons. Uh, usually it's just really bad timing. If a person has uh, is going through a periodic reinvestigation, let's say their employer loses a contract while this is going on, their case gets completed and, and sent to the DOD consolidated adjudication facility. When it arrives, the first thing the adjudicator does is check on the individual status within the DIS. Defense Information for Security System. If they're no longer affiliated with the government and there's an investigation to be adjudicated, then they will enter an LOJ. So it's any time there's a pending adjudication and the person is no longer affiliated with the government, then they enter the LOJ. It also happens when a person is fired from a job and the employer submits an incident report. The incident report goes forward in his pending adjudication and the person is separated from their employer. The adjudicator looks at it and says there's no reason to adjudicate because clearance is no longer required. Again, LOJ is entered into the security record. It's really a, I mean, we've written about it before. It's really a catch-22 situation. So a loss of jurisdiction is going to occur for that person who already has a security clearance or has obtained a security clearance and then has something something happened in the process where their eligibility is removed. But it pretty much takes a new agency or a new organization taking on that clearance for that to be resolved. So do you have any tips for candidates who find themselves in that situation in order to kind of get another agency or organization engaged on helping them with their eligibility? or do you find it's really difficult to do that? I'd like to point out that sometimes it happens with new applicants as well. If their investigation takes a long time, the employer may give up on them and, and withdraw sponsorship on an initial application. And that could result in the LOJ as well. If everything stops uh, soon enough, then the investigation is terminated before it's completed and it never gets to adjudication. So they wouldn't enter an LOJ. But if an LOJ is entered and the person, let's say, no, well, they're not going to have a, a job because that's the basis for the LOJ. They can request a copy of their DISS record under the provisions of the Privacy Act. And in there will be the narrative, let's say for an incident report. They can also request a copy of their background investigation. and They can see exactly what happened there, that delayed adjudication. There's probably some unfavorable information and the case just drug out for a long time. But getting the incident report, and that that's usually the reason for LOJs, uh, getting the incident report, if it's a minor problem, uh, they can show the incident report to a prospective employer to convince the employer that the matter can be cleared up quickly if it, if they're willing to sponsor him for the clearance. If it's a very serious matter in the incident, not likely that the employer is going to take him on because 
you're looking at uh, several months after the person is sponsored for a clearance before all of this will be resolved. And potential employers are you know, more likely than to pass on that prospective employee and, and go on to somebody else who's never had a clearance before and has a good possibility of getting an interim clearance within a, in less than a month. So the only thing the applicant can do is, is to get a copy of the incident report, uh, which is, like I said, in the DISS record. If it's a minor matter, you know, show it to the prospective employer. Other than that, there, there's really nothing that the um, applicant can do to encourage an employer to sponsor them for a security clearance. But knowledge is power. And I think that point is a big one. We certainly encourage applicants to do that. If you receive a statement of reasons, make sure that you have that information. If you get a loss of jurisdiction, make sure you follow the steps that you can take under the Privacy Act to get a copy of that investigation. Because there are sometimes minor issues that, that come up that could be resolved and having that information can help you as you're applying for the next job. I think the other thing we also say or see is that passage of time can certainly help, I think, in a loss of jurisdiction case as well. So if you, if you can speak to that at all, where if you have an incident even that occurs, one of the biggest ways to mitigate any issue is passage of time. So just because you you know have a loss of jurisdiction or an issue at one point doesn't mean that a few years later you couldn't successfully apply for and obtain a security clearance. Would you say that's correct or have any thoughts there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things about security clearances is if something adverse is going on, applicant needs to find out exactly what it is. And generally, the only way to do that is to submit Privacy Act requests, either for the investigative file or for the um, DISS record uh, to see exactly what's going on. I had a client once who I had him get his DISS record and the incident report merely said subject, meaning the applicant, subject terminated for cause. But there was no other explanation for why they submitted an incident report. Under that type of circumstance, I think it would be fairly easy to convince a prospective employer to sponsor them for the clearance and try to get the matter straightened out. I remember another client who had just had a um, periodic reinvestigation completed when her employer's contract terminated. The periodic reinvestigation got hung up and consequently the LOJ was entered into a record. In this particular case, they had something called back then, it was called a PPR, um, a phase periodic reinvestigation. And phase periodic reinvestigations were only done when it was a clean case. So any prospective employer would be able to see that and say, oh, well, gee, you know, it's, it's a phased periodic reinvestigation. There's no unfavorable information in there. It was just really poor timing of uh, losing her job when her periodic reinvestigation had just been completed. So again, knowledge is power when it comes to the security clearance process. And if you have problems, there are certainly steps that can be taken to mitigate them. Although loss of jurisdiction is certainly one of the more troublesome issues for security clearance applicants. Thank you again so much, Bill, for chatting with us. And I know that we're going to have you back to talk about foreign influence and foreign involvement and other topic. So we appreciate your time chatting with us today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And um, anytime, I'm more than happy to participate. Need to hire security clear professionals? Reach the largest collection of cleared candidates with clearancejobs.com. Clear professionals trust the privacy and security of Clearance Jobs Career Network, along with federal agencies and more than a thousand intelligence and defense contractors. Features like IntelliSearch, Workflow, and Meetings make it easy to build relationships, pipeline, and automate the recruiting process while slashing time to hire. Get more information and learn how you can connect with top cleared candidates at clearancejobs.com. Welcome back to Security Clearance Insecurity. I am Security Clearance Attorney Sean Bigley. I'm here with clearancejobs.com's Lindy Kaiser. And 
this segment, we are going to be talking about security clearance denials and revocations being down significantly in fiscal years 20 and 21. And the big question on a lot of folks' minds in the national security community, is a tidal wave coming of denials and revocations? Where did all of these cases go? On that note, I think we should start with some statistics here for our listeners, Lindy, to kind of give them a little bit of flavor, a little background as to the context here of what we're talking about. From fiscal year 2016 through 2019, the DOD denied or revoked an average of roughly 5,657 security clearances annually. Now, when we talk about fiscal year, keep in mind we're talking federal government fiscal year, so October being the start date, not January 1st. In fiscal year 2020, the DOD denied or revoked only a total of 3,793, 3,793 security clearances, a decrease of a third over halfway through fiscal year 2021 when my office recently reached out to DOD's consolidated adjudication facility and requested these numbers. Only 1,421 security clearances had been denied or revoked at DOD. So assuming that pace continued for the balance of this fiscal year, DOD, the largest issuer of security clearances in the entire federal government would have denied or revoked only half the number of security clearances this fiscal year than they averaged in the four fiscal years immediately prior to COVID. So I think, Lindy, first takeaway I have from all this is the timing. I mean, clearly this is COVID related, right? We see this and we have seen this a lot in in our law practice where it's not just the clearance denials and revocations, it's the whole process, everything really has kind of slowed down, or at least it did early in the pandemic when everybody, the federal government included, was trying to get its footing and figure out, you know, this new normal of how do we deal with this? What are we going to do about social distancing and inability to travel and all of these barriers that were suddenly thrown up by this pandemic that, you know, seemed to kind of come out of left field. Are you getting a sense from folks that you've talked to and folks on the clearancejobs.com forums that they are seeing delays on the early part of the process still, uh, the, the investigative part of the process as well? No. But I, your data is so fascinating to me, Sean. I love it. And this is a question I've been getting because the intriguing thing to me is we're seeing this decline in denials and revocations while we're seeing this huge uptick in continuous vetting numbers. So DOD is actually poised to have all of its population enrolled in continuous vetting. So the, the chatter I've been getting is a lot of security officers have been saying, hey, are you seeing an uptick in denials and revocations due to more things being flagged by continuous vetting. And again, as your numbers point out, no, we're not. But I don't know if there's a Doha backlog brewing, which I always wonder about. Because I have started to see, it seems like some of the cases that are even coming out of Doha are, are older cases that they're just now getting to. So like you said, is there... DCSA is pretty transparent about all of their numbers and their investigation numbers and all that. So I don't know that there's a huge number of cases hiding, but it's the timing is odd because, again, you can't chuck everybody home and say, hey, nobody's doing anything wrong now that everybody's working from home, right? There's no you know, denials. Or, there are adjudicated criteria where I would actually see 
I would expect as someone who's in this process to, to see more denials just related to things getting flagged by continuous vetting, whether all of those results in actual denials, but I feel like we should be seeing more activity by things coming up in the continuous vetting process. But again, like you said, the numbers just don't back it up. I don't know where the disparity is. If Again, if there's a backlog happening there so- somehow with cases or this vetting system, I have so many questions and very few answers. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I know this, you know, when I say that, I, I realize fully that many, many people outside the Beltway may find this very uninteresting. But I think for all of us who work in this field, I mean, it's it's really been a marked shift and very noticeable over the last couple of years. So I think the first thing that I've noticed in our practice is that DCSA on the frontline portion of this, the, the background investigators and the people who are out kind of pounding the pavement, or at least who were prior to COVID, when they're now doing everything remotely, they've really been surprisingly quick to adapt. I was very impressed and surprised at how quickly the background investigator workforce sort of was able to shift from what had been a longstanding process of going out and, you know, physically face-to-face interviewing subjects and references and things like that to all of a sudden now doing it by video conference. I think that their agility and their ability to manage that transition as seamlessly as they did is really worthy of some credit um, and some praise for, especially for the folks who have been handling uh, the technical side of that. I mean, that that's been a, I would imagine, a, a very big process to get going. But we, we've not seen uh, really delays on our end, at least in the investigative process. We've actually had cases recently where we've counseled people prior to submitting their SF eighty six. And within four to six weeks, they were meeting with their investigators. So I I think you're right that that's not where the delays are. Um, I think the delays from what we've seen are actually more on the back end. And so you mentioned Doha, for example, Doha being the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals. For folks who may not know, the office at DOD that uh, provides due process hearings and sort of handles the back-end adjudications of folks who have been denied or revoked, um, we are actually seeing very, very significant delays there. We have a lot of cases that have been sitting at Doha um, for a very long time and just don't seem to be moving. And so that has generated a lot of frustration for folks who are waiting on clearances, for example, to start a job. And so they're sitting at home sort of going, you know, when's my hearing? There are a couple of other agencies as well that we've seen some delays within the intelligence community, for example, the National Reconnaissance Office was a big one. They sort of just dropped off the radar and we were having cases where, you know, we couldn't get in contact with anybody there for like 12 months straight. And it was just constantly, you know, going to voicemail, letters being unanswered, things like that. There's a very broad spectrum here in terms of how agencies have managed and responded to COVID when it comes to processing security clearance cases. And some, frankly, have done a much better job than others. Being completely candid, we've been a little disappointed at how DOD or Doha, I should say specifically, has handled this process. It's been very, very slow, but we've seen other elements within DOD, uh, for example, DOD CAF, um, that has actually been surprisingly quick. So um, I think it's hard to kind of, you know, paint this with a, a, a universal brush. Um, there are really um, significant variations amongst the agencies, but the biggest takeaway from all of this that I have and, and you know, the thing that 
I think is is generating the angst for a lot of people beyond just the waiting is where are these cases? As you said, we sort of expect when people are sitting at home that maybe there's new issues that are popping up, misuse of you know government laptops, for example, things like that. And I think those are the types of cases that we expect to pop up maybe in a year or two. There's there's some lag time between you know when somebody gets in trouble and when it actually. Uh, you know, filters its way up and they have to pay the piper for it. I wrote about this recently and I we can talk about this. I, I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of people who are being very cavalier about this and and maybe they shouldn't be. What, what's your sense there, Lindy? I mean, do you, do you feel like from what you're hearing from folks that you're getting the sense a lot of people are kind of feeling like they're in the clear here and maybe that's not a fair assessment? We've talked about this a ton at Clearance Jobs about how kind of COVID created this whole like MacGyver solution scenario where we're sending a lot of people home, we're working remotely. Like you said, there's agencies and organizations that had pretty good processes in place for getting their workforces working remotely. DCSA was pretty well poised to do that for their investigators, had a lot of contract investigators who have always worked remote anyway. But there's certainly some members of the population that that potentially weren't. I don't think we're probably, we shouldn't be seeing fewer violations per se but there is some element of visibility, like you said, that it's going to take some time to catch up. So that's why I am wondering what will come up. I said at the very beginning of the pandemic, like there's going to be more denials and revocations on, based on misuse of IT systems. If there aren't, government's not paying attention because I've been working remote for years and it's just too easy to, to do something. And again, whether those things should result in denials or revocations, I don't know. And like I said, both, both of us working in this space, I do think there is something in the figures, just hearing you cite the figures that, at the beginning of this that should be encouraging to any Anybody who might be listening and thinking like, hey, I'm actually listening to this because I want to know more about the security clearance process. Do I have any chances of, of obtaining a security clearance? What Sean and I can both say is if you are a, a reasonably decent individual or human being, you have a decent chance of obtaining a security clearance, especially if you have the patience to undergo the process. But like you said, that's kind of the issue with the backlog at Doha potentially is how many of those applicants are going to just weed themselves out of the process because they don't have the patience to get through with it. If you have the patience and you can fit under, again, we call this whole person concept in terms of how having more good that outweighs the bad, you have a decent chance of being able to obtain the security clearance. And again, even just reading the numbers should be encouraging for anyone who's thinking about applying for a security clearance. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, on that point, you know, we're talking here numbers that are you know, essentially four figures. So, you know, even on the high end, when they were revoking an average of 5,657 clearances a year, I mean, you got to realize that's out of hundreds of thousands of people who are getting cleared annually and out of a a total cleared population that's, uh, I think, somewhere in the order of 4 million people. So it's a very small percentage on the whole of folks who actually are denied or revoked. I would say, statistically speaking, 5% 5% or less who even run into problems. That's not even people who are ultimately denied or revoked, but people who actually run into just, you know, additional questions, needing to do an additional interview, things like that. It's a very small number. So I don't want people to hear this and run for the hills and think, oh my gosh, I'm never applying for a position that requires a security clearance. If if that's your passion and you, you want a career in national security or diplomacy or intelligence or anything that might require security clearance, I think you have to be real with yourself and you have to do an honest assessment of, you know, do I have a background that is going to pass muster? 
at the end of the day, I mean, if you look through the SF86 and you look at the areas that are being queried and you feel confident that you don't have issues in your background that are going to preclude you from being denied a clearance, go for it. I mean, it's it's not something that you know should be an impediment or some sort of psychological barrier to applying. That being said, you know, I, I do think we see on our end, at least some people who kind of are the opposite extreme of the spectrum, they maybe should be concerned that they're going to have their clearance revoked in the near future because they're being wildly financially irresponsible, or they're dabbling in drugs on the weekend, or they failed to report their foreign national girlfriend who they're now getting engaged to, or I mean, there's an endless stream of examples that I could provide. But these cases, these numbers that we're seeing that are down so much, I have to assume that the difference, those thousands of cases that are not being uh, processed, those thousands of people who aren't being denied or revoked or haven't been for the last two years, those are piled up somewhere. And so if you think that you may be in for problems in the near future, don't rest on your laurels. Use this time and this sort of, I hate to use the term stay of execution, but this this break, if you will, that you got because of COVID and because of the government not processing these things as expeditiously as they typically do, use that time to get your financial house in order or get yourself into drug rehab or start attending AA meetings or do whatever it is that you need to do so that when the time does come to pay the piper, you have something to show for it and you have a defense that you can actually put on. Excellent advice and certainly something we see come up in the cases. You can. It's always better to mitigate something before you apply for a security clearance in the first place. But if you apply, you receive a statement of reason. Again, you're just going through the process and you take no steps to mitigate things, that looks even worse. So again, if you've applied and you're kind of in that waiting game period and you know there's something negative, take some effort and time to fix it. And and like I say, don't wait for a Doha denial to come in. Yeah. Proactivity really is the name of the game here. I, I can't stress that enough. I mean, we see this so often where people come to us, for example, and they're desperate to clean up a mess that they could have cleaned up two years ago. And it's sometimes hard to do that on the back end when we're going into a denial or a revocation hearing and the government representative sitting there looking at the person going, okay, well, I see that you have $50,000 in delinquent debt and you just started paying it last week. Well, you know, that's nice that you're paying it now, but why why didn't you start paying it two years ago? You know, and, and so it sometimes rings a little hollow when, you know, we're going into these things and people are just cleaning up their act days or weeks before they're walking in the room, it it looks like, you know, they're only doing it because they're kind of being forced to do it. And that's really not a good look. It's not what the government wants to see. So ultimately, a lot of these cases are winnable, you know, just because you get an initial denial, that's not the end. I mean, most of these cases, I would say are winnable, you got to put in the effort to get there. And so, you know, if you think that things are headed in that direction, I always tell people, you know, don't wait for the government to tell you what their concern is. If you know what it is, or you reasonably know or think, you know, that this is going to be a problem, whatever this is, there are a lot of things that you can be doing proactively in most cases to address them. And, you know, we've had over the years some very, I think, creative folks on the clearance jobs discussion forums who have been talking about those sorts of things. So I know that's a great resource as well. Awesome. On that note, be honest but also know the government's coming for you at some point. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Security Clearance Insecurity. Please note the information provided on this program is intended as general information only and should not be construed as legal advice. Consult a security clearance attorney regarding your specific situation. Have a question about security clearance process? Interested in submitting your own topic for security clearance insecurity? Have a question you'd like us to address on a future episode? Drop us an email, editor at clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to Security Clearance Insecurity with your host, Lindy Kaiser of clearancejobs.com and Sean Bigley of security clearance law firm, Bigley Ranish. Join us next time as we continue to answer all the questions about security clearance careers you have, but we're too afraid to ask your security manager.